So this picture on the screen is a picture of a broken vase that my wife gave to me. And you need to realize that I'm a klutz. If, if I'm holding a sharp object, I probably will cut myself with it. If I'm holding something fragile, I'm likely to drop it and break it. And so if you see this vase, your first reaction might be, Bruce, what did you do to it? It looks like it's been broken and shattered and remended multiple times. You must have been, been careless with this beautiful piece of pottery. And what I want you to know is I didn't do anything to this. This vase is exactly as it was made by Christian potter Carol Walliver. I saw it on display at an art exhibition and I was immediately, immediately attracted to it because it was so distinctive. And so I had a chance to talk with Carol and I said, okay, as an artist and as a woman of faith, what are you trying to say through this unique vase? And here's what she said. We all come to God broken and cracked by life. And in his own unique and mysterious ways, our loving God mends us. He puts the pieces back together. Yet in this life, He never makes us perfect. Scars and imperfections remain. And it's just that in some of us, the cracks are more visible than in others. I think that's rather profound. So I keep this vase around to remind me that I'm a broken person living in a broken world. And I'm not alone, it's true for all of us because emotional wounds and relational hurts and physical injuries are a normal part of life. And sometimes we experience those things through absolutely no fault of our own. And sometimes they're a direct result of our own attitudes and our own actions. Whatever the cause, though, you and I have been broken. And yet, just like this vase, we can be cracked, and, and yet we can still be beautiful, and we can, we can still be useful because we've been mended by a gracious and loving God. And God mends us because He doesn't want us to wallow in our brokenness and live as helpless and hopeless people. His greatest desire is to heal us and restore us. And we see this through the very distinctive story of a man in the Bible named Mephibosheth. Now, I have a really tough time getting my mouth around that name. And to avoid spluttering and stuttering my way through this message and subjecting you to my verbal <laughs> imperfections, I'm going to call this guy Bo. Now, as we're going to see, Bo experiences far more tragedy than anyone ever should have to endure in life. He loses both his parents. He loses the use of his feet. He loses his sense of usefulness and self-respect, and his life seems empty and worthless. He is a man who is lame and isolated. And yet, it's at that moment when people are at rock bottom, that's so often when our God steps in. And what we're going to see in this case, God steps into Bo's life by prompting King David to act. And King David will be the means by which God mends the broken life of Bo. 
And so let's take a look at this story that starts in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might, excuse me, I'm already getting tongue-tied. Is there any, still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now what we just read is the beginning of an absolutely amazing story. It's a story that has its roots in the deep relationship between King David of Israel and his closest friend, Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. And as young men, David and Jonathan made a pledge to each other that, excuse me, uh, yes, David and Jonathan made a pledge to each other that they would be more than friends, they would be like brothers, and that their relationship would be anchored around their faith, that God would be present in their relationship, and they would treat each other the way God wanted them to treat brothers. And they exchanged a vow, and it was a covenant between them, and they made it binding not only on themselves, but upon their descendants. Now, at the time that we have this particular story, many years have passed. That covenant was made a long time ago. And Saul and Jonathan both are dead. David's been a bit preoccupied. He's been busy defeating his enemies and establishing himself on the throne as king. So he hasn't had a lot of time to think about other things, but he's never forgotten Jonathan and the vow he made. And so finally now he's secure in his kingship. He's got time to think and to catch his breath. And he remembers, I made this vow to Jonathan. And he wants to act upon it. And here's an interesting point for us to consider. When, when David and Jonathan made that vow, they made it privately and personally. No one else was around. They've never shared that information with anyone else. And Jonathan's now dead. No living person but David knows about that vow. Which means David could just forget all about it. There's no one to hold him accountable for following through. And I, I love David's integrity because he doesn't follow that path. He knows the vow that he made before God, and that's all that matters. And I think that's a great example for you and I to not let important commitments slide just because we think we might be able to get away with it because there's no one to hold us accountable. David pursues his vow. And we learn that there's this servant named Ziba, and he knows that Jonathan has a son who could use some help. But what to me is really fascinating, when Ziba refers to this young man, he doesn't call him by his name. He says, oh, Jonathan has a son, and he's crippled in his feet. As if his disability is his most defining characteristic. And it occurs to me that if we're not careful, we easily can do the same thing in terms of how we refer to other people. 
Oh, did you see that woman over there with the wheelchair? Oh, I just met Bob. He's the guy over there walking with a limp. We need to be careful about doing that. First, because none of us are perfect. We're all disabled in various ways. Some of us just have more visible cracks than others. And second, human beings who are made in the image of God are far more than just their disabilities. Now what we learn from other parts of Scripture is that in the case of Bo, his disability, his lameness is extensive. He's got a lot of cracks and scars in his life. As a young boy, Bo was cared for by a nurse because his mom was not around. His father, Jonathan, was a soldier and often away from home. So so just picture that then, an absent mother, a semi-absent father, and a nurse. That's not an ideal situation for the home life of a child. But then when Bo is just five years old, he experiences the worst day of his life. His grandfather, King Saul, and his father, Jonathan, and two of his uncles all die in the same battle on the same day. His family is gone. That is absolutely horrible. And yet, Bo's bad day is about to get worse. You see, with Saul killed... A new king will take over, and in that day it's customary for new kings to hunt down all the male descendants of the prior king to eliminate the threat of rebellion. And here's Bo, this little five-year-old boy. He's the king's grandson, and his nurse thinks he's in danger. She's terrified, and she flees to get the boy to safety. And while she's running along, carrying Bo in her arms, she trips, and she falls, and Bo's spine is damaged. And he becomes lame in both of his feet. He's crippled. Now that's just heartbreaking. Here's a loving nurse trying so hard to do the right thing and tragedy results for the young boy in her care. And so Bo becomes a paraplegic on the same day he loses his entire family. That's not fair. It's just not fair. Yet as we all know, unfair things happen in our broken world. And the challenge is we have to have the faith to navigate the path of brokenness and trust that God will walk with us. But in one terrible, awful, no good, very bad day, Bo's life has been turned upside down. And what's really tragic, it doesn't get any better. He's now an orphan and he's moved to this little town called Lodabar. And it is really a lousy place to live. Lodabar is a wrong side of the tracks, dead-end kind of town. And it's reflected in its name. The people who named it Lodabar, that name literally means no thing. Because it's a town of nothing. It, it is not a place for people to thrive. It's a place where people simply try to survive. 
So Bo is taken there as a broken young boy, and he grows into a broken young man, and he's lame, and he's isolated. No family, few friends, nothing productive to do. King David doesn't know he exists. Bo doesn't know about David's covenant with Jonathan. And therefore, Bo, as a descendant of the prior king, would continue to believe, I can't go to Jerusalem because my life would be in danger. But here's the spiritual dimension of that. Jerusalem is where the tabernacle is, and inside the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where God physically resides for the Jews. So amidst all of the other losses of his life, Bo is spiritually isolated. He is physically separated from God. He's hopeless. And all of these losses of Bo's life are very clearly summarized in the original Hebrew text. When, king, when Ziba tells King David that Bo is crippled in both feet, he uses a very specific Hebrew word, nakeh. And here's what's really interesting. Nakeh refers to a lameness of both body and soul. Nakeh describes a person with a broken spirit. A person who is Nakeh is a human being without any shred of hope. Pastor and blogger Wade Burleson offers some insight into the meaning of this Hebrew word as a result of his work as a volunteer police chaplain. More than once, he's had to inform families about the suicide of a loved one. And he writes, I visit the scene, I take the note the person has left behind, and then I go tell the family. And as we read these suicide notes, they are filled with nakah, because the words are written by people who are broken in spirit. And that's why they took their own life. Now, as far as we know, Bo isn't suicidal, but he is a broken man. He's lame in every sense of the word. He is, as Ziba says, nakeh. He's at rock bottom. And yet, and yet it's never too late to be mended. It's never too late for us to be rescued and restored by God. And that's what God is going to do for Bo through King David. However, as we're going to see, Bo initially doesn't understand David's good intentions. Bo has been so broken and so hopeless for so long that he doesn't believe anything good ever will happen to him. Let's look at what happens next. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and Bo, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Bo! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Next slide, please. That's okay. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he, that's Bo, paid homage and said, Listen to this. What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Wow. 
Now, when Bo first enters the presence of the king, he's afraid. We need to remember that he doesn't know about the covenant between his father and David. It's natural to wonder if he's in danger. And yet there's no danger because when they meet, David first says, don't fear. You don't need to be afraid of me. I've got good things in store for you. And then he makes these two incredible offers. First, Bo will get back all the land that originally belonged to his family. That property became David's when he assumed the throne. Yet he will restore it to restore good fortune to Bo. And and we need to catch that. David owns something of great value, and it's his legally by right. And he will sacrificially give that away in order to bless the son of Jonathan. That is generosity. Sacrificial generosity. And the second thing is that Bo always will have the privilege of eating at the table of the king. That's an honor typically reserved only for family members. And this tells us that David is keeping the vow that he made to Jonathan, a vow that they and their descendants would be like family. Bo's going to be like a son. And yet, Bo doesn't respond to this offer with joy. He responds with despair. Now, now the custom in that culture is you're supposed to be humble in the presence of the king, but when you call yourself a dead dog, it's a clear sign that you are nakah. Bo's life has been so empty that he simply can't believe what David says. And and the fact is, when we're beaten down and hopeless, it's not always easy to receive the gifts of grace that may be offered to us. When we're broken in spirit, it's not always easy for hope to spring back to life in our soul. So how does David break through Bo's wall of hopelessness? Well, we're going to see that he calls Ziba in. And he gives specific instructions to Ziba in front of Bo. Instructions that will, will let Bo know this isn't a dream, it's not a cruel joke. Da- David's going to reiterate his promises in front of a witness to let Bo know that this is a moment when his world is about to change dramatically. And Bo has been lame and isolated, he's been lame and hopeless. But now, from this point forward, he will be lame and yet restored. Look what happens. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. That's Bo. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Bo, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Bo ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Bo had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Bo's servants. So Bo lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. 
So with this gift from King David, Bo instantly goes from subsistence living to becoming a man of means. He's no longer going to have to live in exile in Lod to Bar. He's now going to live in Jerusalem. And he'll be able to earn a living from his own assets because he immediately becomes the owner of this extensive piece of property that takes at least 35 people to do the work. And Bo's going to get to be in charge of it all. Zeba will report to him. He'll be Zeba's overseer. He likely will, will be the final authority for making decisions about the planting of crops and the purchasing and sale of livestock. It will be up to him to make final decisions about how income and expenses are properly managed. Bo, from this point forward, is going to have a life of purpose. Plus, now that he's no longer isolated in the dead-end town of Lodabar and living in Jerusalem, he meets a woman and they have a son. Bo had lost his entire family, and God now gives him a new family. Plus, because Bo lives in Jerusalem, he now has access to the tabernacle, so he once again can worship in the physical presence of God. Plus, even though Bo now will be able to eat his own food from his own table, he's going to get to eat with the king anytime he wants, because he will be like a son to David. Bo has a permanent seat at the table of the king. What a dramatic change in the trajectory of a life. And it's all the result of an incredible act of grace by David. David's gift is gracious because it's sacrificial. It's gracious because it's generous. And it's gracious because it's also risky. If Bo has any sense of envy or greed or wounded pride that his family no longer controls the throne, then David has just handed him a golden opportunity. Bo now has access to the king's inner circle. And if he chooses, he can undermine the king. Bo's got assets, he's got money, he's got land. He can use these things as bargaining chips to build a constituency of people loyal to himself and not loyal to David. Bo could misuse these gracious gifts to try to divert power to himself. And we need to remember that there's always a risk in extending grace. The risk that people will take advantage of it. Grace is a generous undeserved, risky gift. David offers grace to Bo the same way that our incredible God offers grace to us. It's a gift with no strings attached. And we can use it or we can abuse it or like Bo, we simply can receive it and enjoy it. And Bo embraces this gift of grace and he dines at the king's table in the role of a privileged son. So Bo was broken and now he's mended. He was isolated and now he's restored. But can we say that he's been healed? After all, he's still lame in both feet. 
I've read this story so many times, and every time I do, I get so emotional because it's, this is not how I want this story to end. I want God to heal this young man's spine. I want God to restore to him the ability to walk. I want to see Bo leaping and dancing and praising God because he has the full use of his limbs. I want to read about him striding around his property as the master of his domain. But God, God doesn't do that because Bo's story begins and ends with lameness in the feet. And yet, there is a beautiful point that's hidden in the Hebrew text. It's a jewel of truth that lets us know about the transformation that's taken place because Bo's condition in verse 13 is described with a different Hebrew word than the one used in verse 3. When we first meet Bo in this story, he's described as nakah. He's crippled, he's hopeless and broken in spirit, he's lame in body and soul. But after receiving David's gifts of grace, Bo is Pesach. It's a different Hebrew word that means he's lame only in his body. In other words, Bo has been healed. He's been healed in his mind and in his heart and in his soul. Healed of his loneliness and isolation. Healed of his sense of uselessness. God used David's gifts of grace to heal Bo in the deepest and most important ways. And yes, Bo still has feet that don't work. But he has worth. He has value. He has purpose in life. He has access to God. And all because of grace. God's grace extended to Bo through David. Because of grace, Bo sits at the table of the king. Because of grace, Bo can be content with what he has. And oh, he has so much. And he can revel in that and not stew over what he lacks. Yes, Bo is still physically lame, but oh, how he has been healed. He's been broken by so much of life, but he's been mended by the gracious act of a gracious king who reflects the grace of our loving God. And I I really think the powerful nature of this story is captured in the image of my broken vase. Cindy, could we have that picture up one more time? Awesome, thank you. Yes, this vase is cracked, but it's been mended. It still has purpose and meaning and value. I can think of a zillion ways to use this. You could put a cup of water inside it and put some fresh flowers in it. Or you could use it for a dry flower arrangement. You could put a gigantic candle inside it and use it as a candle holder. You could put a little tea light inside it and just let the glow come out. Or you could do what I do. Put it on a shelf in a prominent place and admire its unique beauty. And admire it and reflect on the story it tells. You see, cracked and scarred does not mean useless, not when it's God who's put us back together again. Every time I look at this vase, I see it as a metaphor for Bo. Bo, who still was lame, 
yet who was healed and restored to a full and meaningful and oh so beautiful life. And I think this story of Bo is so important because it helps us understand what matters most to our God. More than anything, our God, our Heavenly Father, wants to have us, His children, seated at His table. And we, like Bo, have received incredible grace from God. It's grace we haven't earned. It's grace we don't deserve. And because of the grace offered to us through Jesus, God has mended us. He has healed us. He's forgiven us. He's restored us. And we always have a seat at the king's table because we are sons and daughters of the king of kings. And yet, just like Bo, we continue on in life being lame in various ways. You and I still have cracks and scars. And Bo's story reminds us that God may choose not to take away all of our physical infirmities, but He always will heal our souls if we respond to His invitation and come to His table. When we accept the gifts of grace that God brings into our lives, we can learn to be content in all things content with what we have, not bitter over what we think we may lack. And so I think this wonderful, powerful story invites us to respond in two distinct ways. First, we can learn from the example of King David. We may know someone like Bo, someone who is lame in some way. And they may be hurting or they may be isolated or they may be broken. And we need to ask, is there something we can do to draw them closer to God? Can we, like David, extend God's grace to help them be mended? Can we help the broken people around us find a seat at the table of the king? And second, we can learn from the example of Bo. There may be an area of life where you feel lame. And you may have been physically injured or impaired because of illness or accident. You may have been emotionally injured by another person. And whatever it is, you're carrying around these wounds and you feel hampered by them. And perhaps you even are frustrated with God because He's not mended you completely in the way that you would prefer. If that's the case, I think this morning... God would say to you, just let it go. Just pray and release it at the foot of the cross. Ask God to help you be like Bo, to be thankful for the grace you've received, to revel in the grace you've received. And you may be lame in some way. I know I am but you and I can move on in life as healed and restored people just like Bo. Here, oh, here's the richest blessing of all. You and I may have cracks and scars, but that doesn't make us second-class citizens in God's family. As children of God, you and I always, always, always have a seat at the table of our gracious and loving King. And we have the privilege of coming into his presence where he will bless us and shower us with his grace. Oh, can we just revel in that? 
because we may be lame. We may be scarred. But oh, how we have been healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just I marvel at this story. You gave Bo so much and you've given us so much. We've received incredible grace from you that we've not earned and don't deserve. And I would pray, Father, if any of us here this morning are struggling with an area of lameness in our lives, whether it's physical or emotional or relational or spiritual, help us to bring that to you this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you heal us from the wounds of the past so we can enjoy what you've given us, the privilege of sitting at your table, the table of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thank you for the forgiveness that allows us to enjoy that privileged relationship. Thank you, Father, for your grace. And thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.